All right, we've got a, a, a super special episode of the uh, show. We've got two guests. Double, double your pleasure. Double your fun. What was that chewing gum called? Double mint. Yeah. Remember double, double mint? mint? Maybe. Yeah. 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 It was always remember uh, the ads. Yeah, it was always like you'd get like uh, it was like two two twin teenagers, boys or girls, would uh, would get double the pleasure out of I guess like a shared piece of gum or something. <laughs> <laughs> we got Brent Simmons. Uh, Yo, longtime friend of the show, and Manton Reese, who's a longtime friend of me, but I don't think has ever been on the show before. No, thanks for having me. Uh, and I've I got both of you on because you guys both have new stuff that's come out. Some of it you've collaborated on, uh, and it's all sort of interrelated. It makes I think it makes a lot more sense to have you guys on together than than separately. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I've described Manton and, and me in a way as litter mates. You know, we kind of came up around the same time, and we have a lot of the same values, and, you know, 90s, you know, scripting, and web, and Mac, and all that good stuff. So it's not a surprise that we're still, you know, uh, collaborating uh, on stuff so many years later. So one of the things, it's not even one of the major announcements, I mean, but we're, I'll just list them up front. We've got uh, JSON Feed, which is a new format for syndication of, of content in JSON format. We've got uh, micro.blog which is a microblogging platform that Manton just uh, launched about a month ago. Uh, we've got other cool stuff related to feeds with Brent. And then, uh, but then one of the other things you're working on right now, Brent, is you are working on a modernization or getting front, just getting Frontier to, to run again. Well, it, it really is pretty much a ground-up rewrite. Uh, you know, I have the old source code that I, you know, with me, and I can do a build on it. 10.6.8 virtual machine, but otherwise I'm rewriting it almost entirely in Swift. So it's you know it's going to be all new code or almost all new code. And man, you were you were a big Frontier user back in the day, right? I was absolutely. Yeah, I built a bunch of web related things in Frontier, and gosh, it's it's so long ago now. But yeah, I was a big fan of the design, how it thought about scripting integrated with you know the database. Uh, it's just a great platform. I'm glad to see. It's uh, getting some new life. Maybe some new people will discover it. So at a, one of you guys take this. Uh, at a high level, can you explain to somebody who doesn't know what Frontier was? And I think it's fair at this point to talk about it in the past tense because it doesn't – right now, today, it doesn't really run on a modern platform even though there's – it's complicated, <laughs> right? It is. Old code never dies completely. But can somebody take a high-level overview of just what Frontier was? I can give that a, a, a try. I'm so close to it, though, that I, I don't know if I've ever been good at this. Uh, at a high level, it's a scripting system with a database and a user interface. So it, it makes persistence really, really easy. Because the database is tables, which can contain objects and other tables. And it's schema-less. So storing stuff forever is just as easy as using key paths, which then math, map to... Uh, locations in the database. So foo.bar.x equals, you know, whatever you want it to be, a string or a number or an outline or um, any number of different things. And, and for some reason, that just makes development really, really rapid and really fun, really easy. There's more to it than that, but that's a high level. So one of the things, it, it, it sounds so trivial, and for people out there, and again, I don't want to bore anybody, I'm not going to turn it into a programming podcast, but um, the it, persistence of data 
was uh, literally non-trivial. I mean, I mean, trivial in in Frontier. You, you, it it was as easy to store something permanently to disk by writing it to the object database as it was to write it to a temporary variable that it, it dies when the script stops running. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, there. Um, as you're typing, there's no difference between a local variable and a persistent uh, a persistent location. Even a, a programming language like Perl, which is the language I'm personally most familiar with, and and which is famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, for um, it, it making it possible to be very very terse and and write minimal lines of code to do the most things. Just to write something to a file at a minimum is still three or four lines of code where you get a file handle to a path in the file system and then you open the file and test to make sure that it worked. And then you can print to the file handle and whatever you print to the file handle will be written to the file. Whereas in Frontier, you literally would just pick a name for your object, you know, whatever dot whatever dot whatever equals foo and then later mm-hmm. on whatever dot whatever dot whatever you can read from it and it says foo yeah yeah it's literally no harder than just you know assigning a value to a local variable just just as easy as that um, and it came which, out originally frontier came out as i recall around 1992 or so Ninety. Well, I that guess sounds I about right. Could have yeah. done some research, <laughs> but it seems very strange to me and, and sad in some ways that here we are, twenty five years later, and it, there's nothing that easy. There are certain things that Frontier made easy that twenty five years later, there's nothing that fills that void. Yeah, that's right. It's I, I like to think of it as um, an artifact from an alternate universe. If programming uh, and scripting had gone another way. You know, Frontier might be, you know, one of the most important apps on the platform, and there might be a lot of imitators. Uh, but we kind of stuck with the, you know, here's your text file on disk, and we're writing, reading, and writing to files kind of um, uh, kind of way. Uh, where Frontier is, you know, I, I think the technical term might be image based because you're actually in an environment with a database rather than um, separate files on disk for everything. Yeah. Exactly. There was something about, I don't think I even appreciated at the time, you know, that thing about the the language being integrated with the database until years later. Like you said, it's been like 20 years and we still don't really have that. If you want to build a web app today, for example, you you pick a language, Ruby, you know, whatever, Python, Perl, and then you pick like, oh, I need to get the MySQL library in or some other database framework. It's all still very separated. Even on Apple platforms, you have core data or something was like the official way, you know, love it or hate it. That's like the official way to do um, database work on the Mac or iOS, but it's still very separate. There's no, I mean, it's not tightly integrated in the way that Frontier was. Right. It's, it's like every language, every, I mean, I'm sure you can go back 50, 60 years and there's some weird language where you had to, but every language has uh, built in arithmetic operators. So if you've got two integers, you can just use the type, the integer name variable plus the other one, and you get the sum of the two numbers. It would be an enormous pain in the ass if you had to write three or four lines of code to import a arithmetic library and uh, call like a PLUS plus function just to add two integers. But that's still sort of the way that we kind of have to do file IO with everything. Like the, the and, and I love the Unix scripting system. I, I write stuff in Perl all the time. Um, 
and, and there's lots of ways where that's great, but the fact that that's kind of all we're left with today is sort of sad. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since every modern app, especially web apps needs some kind of database persistence. I mean, it's very rare that you have an app that's so lightweight that it doesn't need any database uh, or file IO at all. The other thing historically that was interesting about the timing of Frontier, so Frontier comes out in 1992 or so, early 90s, and that's before the web, and it was mostly about automating stuff on the Mac. Originally, it was Mac only. Eventually, there was a Windows version. Um, but obviously, the big story of the 90s was the web, and um, Frontier quickly shifted to becoming a, a, a place where people would generate... Uh, uh, create their own it wasn't necessarily a, a content management system but you could use it to make content management systems and that's probably manton where you you really got involved with it that's yeah that's right uh, it kind of i don't think i used it before it kind of pivoted a little bit toward the web and and because like frontier used to be a commercial you know buy the box and then the store software package and at the source, there's difficulties with that because you know, you're competing with Apple Script and other things as Apple, you know, HyperCard, all those kind of scripting environments at the time. And at some point, and Brent maybe remembers the details, but it switched to now it's open source and there's a lot you know, more web frameworks and kind of embracing that and trying to find uh, you know, just a new, new set of people that can be using Frontier for, uh, for web apps and for websites. Um. So, it's, <laughs> we've got so many things to talk about. Let's talk hmm. about. Uh, what, you, let's, let's. I'll let you guys pick. Do you want to talk about micro.blog first, or do you want to talk about JSON feed first? Which one do you think makes sense to talk about first before we talk about the other? I like JSON feed. I mean, that's okay. Yeah, you know, we've been focused on that the last couple okay. weeks. Let's talk about that. All right. So, uh, Brent, tell me what JSON feed is. JSON feed is like RSS or Atom. Uh, but it's in JSON, and it has a few um, a few more features that are that are needed these days that didn't exist in RSS and Atom. But the main point of it, I think, is still the JSONness of it. Um, XML is something that people hate working with. They do a lousy job of generating feeds, and everybody just prefers JSON. So hey, let's do this in JSON. And JSON is I think, what's it called? Uh, what's the uh, What's it stand JavaScript for? JavaScript object notation, I think. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's just a way of very simply defining either, I think that the JavaScript term is dictionary. Other languages would call it a hash, but where you have these key value pairs, where mm -hmm. there's a name of the thing and then the value of the thing. And you can have a whole list of them in an object. Um, and you can have arrays, and you don't have to be a programming expert to know what an array is. It's just if you have an array of ten items, it's just a list of ten items, and the order matters. Um, and it's you can have the, what what makes it a little bit more complicated than that is that you can have a dictionary where one of the objects of the dictionary is another dictionary or an array, and so it can get hierarchical and go deeper to have nested data structures. Um, but basically, at a high level, that's it. And it's very simple, and you can look at it as a human and kind of get the gist of exactly what it is and what it means. Yeah, it's not difficulty, difficult to read. Uh, and for, at a programming level, it's super easy to read and write, too. Right. Uh, which kind of 
covers all bases. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that it, it, I feel like uh, is essential to it is that even though it's based on JavaScript syntax and a JavaScript implementation that reads or writes JSON can literally just read the JSON file. And if it's a valid JSON file, just interpret it right through the JavaScript interpreter. You don't have to process it in any way. It's not specific to JavaScript. It has been quickly adopted by every single programming uh, platform that is in use today. It has built-in JSON uh, parsers and generators. It is, again, (laughs) trivial is often a dangerous word to use in programming, but it's generally trivial in any modern uh, programming environment to generate or consume JSON. Often just one line of code uh, for either. Yep. And Very simple. That's not true for XML. It, it's, right. And obviously there are <laughs> many, many very well-known and, and uh, well-done XML libraries. Um, but it is definitely not as uh, one line away as JSON is. And it's proven in the... Uh, well, when did XML first come into being? Probably the late 90s, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, you know, roughly 20 years old. So, I mean, with 20 years of experience under our belt, we can safely say um, <laughs> that even 20 years in, there's an awful lot of broken XML out there. And Brent, you can speak to that in <laughs> oh, your gosh, history yeah. as, as somebody who's, you know, written a very popular feed reader. Uh, Net Newswire, for those of you who don't remember, uh, was originally Brent's product uh and reads rss feeds and atom feeds and <laughs> what percentage of feeds out there do you think had some sort of xml error no oh, I, I haven't thought it in that terms but it's a lot i mean in, in character encoding errors are especially pernicious they they appear all the time because people are building their rss you know using um using a template or whatever not an actual xml writer which would handle all of this stuff for them um and so feeds are just screwed up, you know, a thousand different ways. Uh, it's super common. And so, yeah, I was always working around those kinds of bugs. Um, so JSON feed launch, you guys, it, it's, it's a, the, the, the spec for it is bylined by both of you. It's, uh, I think, Manton Reese and Brent Simmons. Um, I I I have I've, uh, I'm ch- I have like a cheat code because uh, the three of us are on a Slack group together that this this was hashed over in advance. So I've been aware of JSON feed far months before it was actually announced, and I've read the spec and gave you guys some feedback on on typos and stuff like that. Um, but Manton, tell me what got you interested because I think it was Brent's idea first, if I recall my my history from the Slack. It was originally Brent's idea, but Manton, you obviously jumped in far enough that you became a, a full-on, you know, fifty-fifty collaborator on the on the spec. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this, and I looked back on some of the emails, and uh, actually, Brent and I exchanged a couple emails about this as far back as two thousand fifteen. There was a couple. Uh, emails wow. kind of loosely related um, to this. And I thought about it because a, I think a lot of people, when they look at JSON feed, especially at an example, 
JSON, which is just so much more clear and readable and simple than than, than uh, you know XML and RSS feeds, like you said. Uh, I think that some people are kind of fooled into thinking it was just like whipped together really quickly the spec and put out there. Um, and so I was kind of curious how long we've been talking about it. And we just briefly exchanged email way way back, but then in earnest at the beginning of this year, um, Brent said, you know what, the time is right. This is this is a good time. Um, let's let's talk about this. Let's let's think through a spec, see what it would look like, and see if it has a place uh, in the open web. And I, I'm so glad uh, he did, because it's, I really do think the time is right. And a lot of the feedback we get from people is, wow, I got an, actually, I got an email uh, yesterday from someone said, oh, we wanted this at our company you know, 10 years ago. We were hoping someone would do this. And now, finally, you know, it's here. Hmm. Uh, I kept expecting someone to do it too. I, mm, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, for ten years at least, I thought, well, surely this will happen at some point. And then we realized, well, I guess we're the people to make it happen. Well, okay, fine. There's a, a, a infamous. I mean, a, a whole bunch of XKCD comics are very famous, but there's one in particular, and and we've seen it pop up. Uh, probably once a day, every day since JSON feed comes up, where somebody first sees <laughs> JSON feed, and and there's an XKCD comic. I'll, I will put it in the show notes. I swear. Um, but the gist of it is that somebody says, "Hey, there's 14 competing standards in this space. That's that's a mess. This is a terrible idea. Let's come up with a brand new universal format, a spec that'll be the one true spec." And then the third panel is now we have 15 competing specs in the space. And people think they're being very clever when they mention this in the context of JSON feed. But my objection to it, it's a funny comic, I get it, but my objection to it in the context of JSON feed is that JSON feed is in no way, in, in if you read the spec itself, if you read what you, both of you have written about it and, and your interest in it, it is not meant as the let's stop using RSS and Atom and whatever else might be. Ob- it, it, it is meant to be the 15th thing in this field that addresses new issues or, or does things better that the other ones can't do, but isn't meant to replace them. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that is fair. In fact, the spec itself has some wording to the effect of, you know, if you can only do one kind of feed, pick RSS because it's been around a long time, because it's good, because it's, you know, well-tested, uh, supported all over the place. Uh, so we're not saying, you know, that any other format should go away. And we're not trying to be the one universal format. It's, you know, it it is what it is, which is, you know, a pragmatic JSON-based format. Yeah, and I think that's important because uh, some of the the feedback, the negative feedback, you know, we've heard is that it doesn't try to solve all problems. And, you know, some people would like it to solve more problems and be an even more, you know, flexible and kind of advanced format. But then that introduces, you know, complexity and other issues. And then you're kind of back where you started in some way. And it, it doesn't try to do that. It, it really clear, prioritizes, you know, like I said, clarity, just making it really simple to implement. It doesn't try to solve everything. So yeah, that, that comic is funny. I laugh. Well, I laughed the first few times I saw that. <laughs> I don't I haven't laughed quite as much uh, the you know tenth or fifteenth time I've seen someone post it, but it's not quite accurate. And then JSON feed doesn't attempt to do everything; it just tries to solve a few problems and make it really clear. And that, the whole idea, I mean, if we're glossing over it, is you know things are kind of stuck. We 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 could use um, kind of just a little kickstart in you know 
the open web standards, new feed readers, you know, just people even, even just thinking and kind of talking about web standards and feeds and feed readers, I think is a win. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, uh, in the handful of weeks since JSON feed was announced, the uptake, I, I, I was very optimistic about JSON feed. There was something about it that just looking at it, I thought I, I just smelled a winner. I think when I linked to it on Daring Fireball, I said something to the effect of I had the same feeling about it, uh, even though it's not my creation, but I had that same feeling about it that I did about Markdown back in 2002 or, or 2003, when I, whenever it was that I first released Markdown. Um, I just thought when you guys finished it and it was very close to the end, I looked at it and I'm like, this smells like a winner to me because I think that if, if I hadn't been behind the scenes reading a spec for months beforehand, if it had just popped into my news as a new thing, I thought I would look at this and I would think, Oh, that's cool. I should quick add that to daring fireball. That wouldn't take much work. And that's exactly what happened with a bunch of people. We know like, like uh, Jason Snell at six colors, uh, the day that it was announced, he didn't know it was coming. The day that it's announced, he's working on adding it to uh, six colors, which still runs on movable type. And he ran into a very small problem with um, JSON encoding his strings for values. And so I quick put together <laughs> it's the first movable type plugin I've written in, I think, 15 years. <laughs> but it was very, it's super, super small. It is literally like, uh, it's way more comments than code. It's just three or four lines of code to get. Uh, and, and JSON string encoding is super simple. It's, it, there's not a lot of rules. It's not like XML. It's very simple. Um, you pretty much just need to backslash escape your actual um, double quotes because the string is enclosed by double quotes. So every actual double quote in your string needs to be encoded and you take out all your white space. So if you have a tab in your character, you just put a backslash T in and a, a return is a backslash N. Um, and, and so literally Jason Snell had a JSON feed. He never heard of it. And within two hours of hearing about it and a little bit of work for me, he had a, a working JSON feed on his site uh, Manton, you helped create a, a WordPress plugin that was there on day one. And all, I, I mean, I, I lost count. I very quickly lost count of how many sites had JSON feeds within 24 hours of the announcement. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, this response has been incredible. And, and you're right about the, like, the encoding issues and just the simplicity. I mean, one of the problems with XML is that it's hard to put HTML inside XML because oh. they're the same, right? And so you have to escape everything, mm -hmm. and that's really easy to get wrong. And if you, if you just like, pull up a default RSS feed from a website. It's a little bit of a disaster. I mean, it's it's a mix of a lot of things. There's some RSS, there's some Atom, and there's sometimes, and there's at least two or three ways to put HTML in a feed. Mm -hmm. And with JSON, it's just way simpler. You know, we have content underscore HTML field, you put HTML in it, and everything's good. I, so, I think the original sin is XML itself. I think XML... And I, this is, in some ways, it, it's going to be controversial, maybe. But I, I think it was a, a disaster for our entire industry. I think, basically, this is my theory of what happened, is that the web became such a sensational, explosive success, where, like, 1994, nobody had heard of it. 1995, technical people had heard of it. And by 1996, everybody was on the web. 
and, and it's crazy. Uh, you know, Microsoft famously, Bill Gates wrote this memo that was like, we're currently at, you know, mid nineties, the most successful company in the history of the world. And we're completely shifting our entire, everything we do is entirely focused on the internet. All of a sudden we totally missed this and we're shifting the biggest company in the world to be internet focused. And it worked for them, right? It was, it, it was, and it was the right move. And I feel like everybody was so obsessed with the web and the web is all based on HTML and they were like, well, now let's do everything like HTML and let's make a, a data serialization format that is like HTML, where you've got these tags that are set by angle brackets that enclose what they're, uh, you know, whatever it is they represent. And then you end them with the same type of tag. I mean, and like you said, man, XML and HTML pretty much are the same basic idea. There was the whole disaster that we went through where they literally, we spent like, 10 years of standards process trying to get HTML to become XHTML, which was the bastard baby of XML and (laughs) HTML, uh, and and which eventually failed, thank goodness. Failed. Uh, And it was, you know, and, and, HTML5, which is what we have wound up with, which is much better, pretty much went completely around that that XTML, XHTML standards process. But it, it's exactly like you said. In some ways, it's such a bad idea because it's like you've got XML and it's got the same rules as HTML. But a lot of what you want to encode, whether it's in feeds or any other use of, of, of XML, if you're using an XML data format if you if your content is html it's a disaster it it really mm-hmm. is and it looks it's almost impossible for a human to 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 look at it and see if it looks right uh yep and even writing software for it i mean i i think my code works properly for all those different kinds of feeds but there's so many like decode this and then decode this and it's just much more complicated than it needs to be there's there's so many places you can get it wrong mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know you may have it right in your code, but there's going to be feeds or, or documents, whatever there are, that are going to have it wrong on their end, and then your users are going to notice and report it as a bug. And pretty soon you're writing, you know, workarounds to handle buggy, you know, documents and feeds and so on, and it gets messy. I think so. I think the central theme of a lot of this is idealism versus. Uh, Practicality is that the opposite of idealism? Uh, what's what's a good word for that, Brent? Uh, pragmatism. Pragmatism. Pragmatism yeah, is sure. a good word. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so, XML is a very idealistic format, in my opinion, because it 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 is because it is literally it stands for extensible markup language, I believe. But it's it is extensible. Uh, it it can and is in the real world being used for just about anything you could imagine. Um, but it's so complicated because it's so ambitious and because it aimed to be able to represent or to model just about anything you could throw at it. Um, and, and so people say, like, in your announcement, and, and I, I read the whole Hacker News thread on it. I know you guys, wow. you guys oh, did not. Thanks well, for doing that. For if, it was my thing, if it was my thing, I would not have been able to do it. <laughs> like, if it was my baby, if Jason Feed were my baby, I would not have read the Hacker News feed. Or I would have read the first two lines and, and then 
close the tab. I imagine a hundred links to that same XKCD comic. <laughs> I think it came up at least three times. And yeah. it was one of the deeper threads because the first one who did it, I swear, it's it's a really deep thread with all the people who are like, damn it, I was just about to post that. <laughs> um, but one of the bits of pushback on this would be, uh, and, and I've seen this repeated several times, I'll paraphrase, which is you guys are presenting JSON feed as easier and less error prone to generate and parse than XML. And people are saying, you know, the response is if you're having problems parsing and generating XML, the solution isn't to create another format in a different language. How about you fix your XML generators and parsers? <laughs> so XML, you know, it was early enough when XML came out that people didn't really know how developers would behave in, in, as a giant mass. And the fact is, they're just not going to always behave all that well because people are, you know, they have budgets, they have deadlines, they have different skill levels. So, so people aren't necessarily going to do the right thing. So it's important to keep that in mind and use formats that are a whole lot easier so that it, that the burden isn't on each individual developer. Right. And that the fact is this isn't going to like that question, like, why don't you just fix, you know, X it's not going to change. I mean, even if you think back, like we we're talking about Brent working on that newswire, it's been a number of years since Brent worked on that newswire, you know, guess how much has changed since then with RSS feeds, nothing, nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed with, with feed uh, parsing and, and tools. It's basically, same thing. Right. And so uh, I think that would continue. Nothing would change without someone kind of putting something new out there and you know getting people to talk about it. It, it. It's XML is old enough. In fact, I think it's long past old enough. And I think it speaks to you guys saying that you kind of expected something like JSON feed to appear 10 years ago. Uh, and in hindsight, it does. It feels like a real head scratcher that it didn't. I would say by 10 years ago, XML was settled enough that, that we can see how it's used in the real world and in the real world it's often broken and that's that's just a statement of fact and there's you can you can say it shouldn't be you can say that all these people generating malformed xml or subtly malformed or questionable xml that they should fix their their tool chain uh i guess that's correct there's all sorts of things the world should do though we should all exercise every day we should you know uh, stop drinking beer uh, uh, you know there's all sorts of things that we could do that should be better, but that don't reflect the way people actually behave. In fact, it's because of XML that I don't exercise enough and drink too much beer. <laughs> here's, here's my favorite anecdote. I keep, I, maybe, but hopefully by the, in fact, I guarantee it, by the time this podcast airs, this will be a post on Daring Fireball, is, um, um, in, in terms of it being easier to generate, and again, I think that there are people who, if you're already comfortable with your RSS and Atom parsing, like you, you, you're responsible for some product or service that consumes RSS feeds, and you have a working system that consumes these feeds, and you look at JSON feed, I'm not saying you, you two, but you, this hypothetical person who wishes there weren't another new standard, you say, well, now you've just given me more work to do because I have to add support for this new thing. And I already had this thing working. Uh, and it's not that hard to, uh, to consume XML 
that you should be able to do it. I, I disagree, and I think it depends on which platform you're using. But the real eye-opener for me was Workflow, which is the iOS automation system. It's sort of like Automator for iOS. And it was actually recently acquired by Apple um, with a lot of publicity. And, you know, let's... It's a totally different discussion as to whether Apple's going to keep it going as an actively developed product or integrate it into iOS somehow or, or what they're going to do. I don't know. But it's out there now. It's still in the App Store. It was not like, hey, we got acquired by Apple and now it's left out to die. They've actually had a couple of updates since the acquisition. And basically what you can do with autom- with Workflow is you create these uh, they call them workflows and you drag actions. It's a visual way of programming. And maybe there's workflow users who don't think of it as programming, but it is. It's a visual way though. And you drag these things out like um, an action would be get URL and you give it a URL and it'll when it runs, it'll go out on the web and get the content of whatever that URL is. And then you drag an action beneath it and it can do something with it. So here's like a stupid example would be you could get a URL and it say returns text and it's just plain text. And then you could have an action underneath it that says reverse the text and it would, you know, turn Brent into, how do you reverse Brent? I'm terrible at this. This is a terrible example. T T-N-E-R-B, T-N-E-R-B, T-N-E-R-B. And maybe there's like an action to speak the text. So you could have three things in a row, get a URL and it returns a string, reverse the string, and then speak it aloud through your iPhone or iPad speakers. And you haven't written a line of code. You've drugged these, dragged these three things out. You string them in order and the results of each one get passed down the chain. And it's, you know, it, 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 there's other systems. Automator works the same way. Um, but Workflow has proved to be quite popular with the iOS uh, enthusiast set. And it works around certain shortcomings, in my opinion, on the platform, like the fact that there is no scripting system on iOS like there is on macOS. Um, and anyway, where this ties into JSON feed is Federico... Vitici of Mac Stories and, and arguably the most well-known workflow user in the world. He's a serious iOS productivity enthusiast. He writes all sorts of very interesting um, stuff in workflow to aid his productivity. He showed an example with JSON feed on Twitter, and it blew my mind how simple it was because more or less he just passed in the URL to Daring Fireball's JSON feed, and then the next step in JSON was turn that feed into a dictionary, which is a workflow data structure, which is named values with, or keys that have, you know, like the title of the feed, the date of the item, and then a value for each thing. It, it And then all of a sudden in the next step, he can just extract the value from those, the, the dictionary value. So give it a JSON feed, turn it into a workflow dictionary, which is something he's familiar with and is intrinsic to workflow. And then he can do things. Like all of a sudden he could show a list of the uh, all 25 items in the Daring Fireball JSON feed. So workflow wasn't updated to support JSON feed. It just naturally works with JSON, period, and maps JSON to what workflow calls a dictionary. And so Federico wrote uh, a thing like uh, within a day or two of JSON feed being announced where he could do something that was actually useful from workflow. And then I looked into it. Now I'm not a heavy workflow user, but I looked into it. I opened workflow and I, I replicated what he did. 
Uh, and I built a little workflow for me, which I actually might use. I, it's a little thing I can launch from my iPhone home screen now. It shows a list of all my recent articles at Daring Fireball, and I can copy the URL for one. So if I'm texting somebody and I know I want to text them a recent article I wrote, I can do this now with like three taps on my iPhone. Um, but the thing I looked into is, well, could I do this with RSS or Atom in workflow? And the answer is no. There's no way to do it. So the, it's not just, is it easier or harder to parse JSON versus RSS. It's for workflow users, it's literally the difference between it's possible and not possible. Yeah, that's a great example of like new tools, right? That we hope will happen because of this. It wasn't possible to do that before. And and maybe you could have some custom workflow RSS th- thing that was built in that the workflow team worked on, but you can't just have a generic XML. Right. You know, action or th- th- that would work this way, and it gets back to the point earlier about like in a lot of case, a lot of cases, uh, parsing JSON is just one line of code. It can't be one line of code for XML because XML is more complicated. You don't have just one you know key. If you're working on a dictionary, you have attributes. It's just it's it's a different type of format. You can't have the same simplicity with XML. Uh, it's just it's literally not possible to do the same thing and just move, make a dictionary out of it. I, I just think that there are people who think if, if you think XML is simple enough that there's not a need for this, I, I really think that that you're you're overlooking just how dramatically simpler JSON is for a, a lot of modern programming platforms. I, I think it's I think of it as being more democratic, right? So JSON is just usable everywhere and usable by people at uh, massively varying skill levels. Um, that it that it makes things like working with feeds something uh, amateurs of all kinds can totally do and get some value out of. Right, and, and, and I, I think that it sounds small. It sounds small in the way I talked about frontier. You know, persistence is so easy. You might think, oh well, whatever. That's a solved problem for me. But it really does make a huge difference when you when you get to using the thing. It that's it's it is literally why I started by talking about frontier. That I I see a path from there to here that is similar and democratization of this is exactly it, it it's something that i get fired up about i really do think that when you make stuff like this easier for more people to do like there there was an idea in the early days of personal computing where maybe everybody would be a programmer and i think hypercard was sort of designed in that vein of this is the sort of thing that everybody could do. And, and because those of us who can program at some level, you know, like uh, if you can write some kind of script at some level versus it, whether you, maybe you can't write a full fledged, you know, Cocoa application that, that is too far beyond your, your capabilities as a programmer. But if you can program at all, you could see that and you can see how exciting it was in the eighties and nineties when we were writing little scripts in hypercard and you could, you, you wanted that enthusiasm to spread to everybody. But the truth is, everybody isn't a programmer in the same way that in theory, everybody could write novels, but most people don't write novels and everybody could sing, but not everybody sings or plays a musical instrument. I think programming is very much like any of those things where some people have a knack for it and an interest and some people don't, but I still think that there's a huge, I feel like we gave up as an industry on making things approachable to more people at a, at a simpler level level 
And JSON yeah, feed is right. JSON feed is exactly like that. And one of the things too is it's not just about making feed readers, right? It, it, there's all sorts of things that you can do with a feed and the data from a feed that just might not occur to you until all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa, I wish I could just pick a list of recent articles from Daring Fireball and just copy the URL." Sure, I think uh, is it uh, if this then that. Uh, is an example. Yes, right? uh, they have like a you know feed actions things you can do, and and people use that. And um, it would be nice to make that kind of ease of use available in in more different places, many more places. Right, right, and it you know it, I think as JSON feed uh, takes root and blossoms, we'll see things like that where people who might be ifttt I don't know how you pronounce it. Do you say ifttt or if if I don't know if uh, people, you know, might make their own feed for things that you don't think of, uh, you know, something to do with your home and just, you know, uh, the smart home automation stuff. And maybe you start making a feed of uh, times your refrigerator's opened or whatever. I don't know. But there's all sorts of things that you could do with it. And with an easy-to-generate format, uh, it, it just opens the door to things that you haven't thought of yet. Yeah. All right, let me take a break and thank our first sponsor. I want to tell you about our good friends at Fracture. Fracture is out to rescue your favorite photos from the digital ether. Here's what they do. They print your photos directly onto glass, and they add a laser-cut rigid backing. You pick your favorite photos. You send them to Fracture. You upload them. You pick the sizes that you want them printed at. Fracture prints them directly on glass in their carbon-neutral factory down in Gainesville, Florida, handmade. Uh, they ship them to you in a beautiful, clever little box. You take them out of the box and they're literally ready to hang on the wall or prop up on your desk or wherever you're going to put them, depending on the size. Everything you need is right there in the box, ready to go. And they look amazing. It's not just an easy way to get your photos printed. It's also the best way to get your photos printed. And I, let me tell you, as somebody who, I tell you about them all the time, and I underuse them. I have fractures all over the house, but I should have more, because every time I look at one, it makes me happy. Uh, looking at pictures, the nice pictures that I've taken of places I've been, and my wife and my son, uh, other people in our family, it's, it, 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 psychologically, it's just, it makes you feel good. Fracture is a company that makes people happy. Because pictures of loved ones and places you've been that you want to remember will make you happy. Uh, I, I don't want to oversell it, but literally, uh, in a way, Fracture is selling happiness. It's, it's a great company, a great service. You will never, ever regret getting a Fracture. Where do you go to find out more? Their website is FractureMe.com. FractureMe.com slash podcast. They use the same URL for all their podcast ads. And then when you buy your pictures from Fracture, they will ask you a one-question survey, which is, where did you hear of Fracture? And you can tell them you heard it from me, the talk show. Uh, my thanks to Fracture. Go get some pictures printed. They are terrific. Uh, all right, JSON feed. Anything else we want to talk about on JSON feed? Where, hmm. do, we, where do we think it's going? Do you think it's – is the success – about where you expected, about what you hoped, more or less? It's more than I thought, actually. Yeah. Um, it almost seemed to me like people had been sitting around not knowing if anybody else cared about this stuff. And then when we came out with this, a whole bunch of people were like, oh, 
a lot of people care about this stuff, this stuff being, you know, the open web and feeds and things like that. Um, in a weird way, it's kind of like a, a group is finding each other, which is really cool. Yeah. I, I kind of see that too. And, um, it would be interesting. We can parlay this into our next conversation about feed reading. Um, and I'm curious as feed readers now start to adopt JSON feed, I'm curious what they will do when, uh, let's say somebody's using a feed reader and they want to subscribe to Daring Fireball and they just, they say, it says new feed and you type in daringfireball.net. And on the back end, both of my feeds are discoverable. There's an RSS feed, it's technically an Atom feed, but for the sake of it, we'll just call it RSS for clarity. There's an RSS feed and there's a JSON feed. At what point do you think feed readers might start preferring the JSON feed? I That's think many question. will. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know, but I think some might soon because there's it, it, it kind of switches the code path in your app to something that's simpler, um, maybe even faster in some cases. It, it's hard to know. I mean, and the other thing to think about is it's not, we don't expect everything to change overnight, but you have to start somewhere. And so I, I'm, I agree with Brent. I think I, this is more than I thought we'd see in the first week or two. And it gives me a lot of hope that you fast forward, not just weeks or you know months, but like five years, 10 years. I mean, things change over years. And starting now, which we'd start earlier, but starting now uh, works too. Brent, what do you think? Um, you know, it looks like Feedbin, for instance, may already be preferring JSON feed or, or certainly seems to be leaning that direction, um, where others like Feedly aren't even sure yet that they want to support it. Right. So, I, you know, I, I don't really know um, how long it's going to take feed readers in general to prefer that or, you know, we'll see. A, a lot... Yeah, a lot can happen in five years. You know, and it may be that there's some other syndication format in five years that just blows all this away and whatever. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, hard to predict. But I think, you know, JSON feed will will do well and will make make the ecosystem better. I just loaded it, Feedbin. Feedbin is an online uh, feed reader. And <laughs> it's so funny. It's I don't I don't use it, so I don't have any feeds in my in mind, but it's a very nice little uh, like iCloud iCloud.com style web app that looks sort of like a, a, a little bit like a native app. And because I have nothing there in the content column, they just show an outline of a hamburger. <laughs> like a real <laughs> yeah. hamburger, not a hamburger menu. <laughs> it's making me happy. All right. Well, and the nice thing about some of those, like Feedbin is also like a RSS syncing, right. you know, feed syncing thing. So there's lots of native apps that support Feedbin that don't even really need to add direct support to JSON feed necessarily. And they'll get, um, they'll be, you know, quote unquote compatible. And I, and I think the, uh, the other unknown is how much innovation this will spark. You know, we have like extensions in JSON feed, the people coming up with new ideas, things they want feeds to do. And I'm hopeful about that because we haven't, I mean, when Google reader shut down, that was kind of like, Good news, bad news, and, and the good news was that it did spark kind of some innovation and like more feed syncing engines and, and and services. And we haven't seen much like that, but I'm hopeful that we might see something else like that. Like some feed reader will take a leap and say, "I'm going to add a new feature." <laughs> Imagine that I'm going to add a new a new feature to a feed reader that no one has seen before. And so we'll see. 
it sometimes seems to me like um, things now are a little calcified, like like our like the bones of the web have hardened. And in order to do uh, something new, uh, like JSON feed or add new features to a feed reader, or whatever, like you have to go through a bunch of hurdles and pass gatekeepers, and you have all these people explaining why you're doing it wrong and you know, years ago, we would just make things and people would like them or not. And it was fun. And so part of the message here is like, look, we can have fun and we don't actually have to, um, we don't have to listen to all the gatekeepers, all the people who would stop us from, from doing things. Now, it could be that what we're doing isn't the right thing or has a bunch of flaws. You know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but the point is, you know, to let's get back to the place where we actually do make new things and have a good time doing it. It is fun. And I've written that too, that to me, this whole thing with JSON feed is fun. And of course that hopelessly brands me as a nerd that I think that a new <laughs> JSON based syndication feed is fun, but I, it is, I, I have to admit, I've had a, a bit of a thrill just watching this thing take off over the last week or two. And it is fun. It was fun for me to write the, uh, a, a little script that makes the JSON feed for Daring Fireball. Uh, I, I had a good, it was a fun programming project for me uh, in, in the way that I enjoy little uh, things that you can complete in the afternoon programming projects. It was very fun. I think uh, uh, Dr. Drang wrote a post about creating one for his website at uh, Lean Crew. Um, and he's more or less said the same thing, like, you know, as like a little scratch and itch, do, an, do it in an afternoon uh, programming project. This was, it was as build on the, the tin, this is an easy thing to do and fun. Mm, yeah. Um, Ironically, I think uh, of all of us who worked on this spec, I was the last one to actually write code to generate a feed. Like the day before we published, um, I remember it would be easy. So you know, whatever. Yeah. It, it, it's funny though because it, it that is true. I can vouch for that. And I remember it was like we were like uh, you were like here's a checklist of things that need to be done before we announce this publicly. And one of one of them was have an actual JSON feed for inessential. Yeah, and, and for the JSON feed site itself. Yeah, which both use the same content management system which is really one big hairy ruby script. Right. I I don't want to keep hammering on XML, but I will say though that it, it, not that it's hard to make an RSS feed for a site if if you're writing your own, you know, doing it on your own as opposed to using WordPress or something. But I can verify firsthand that it, with the weird system I have behind the scenes at Daring Fireball where I take uh, long story short the system at Daring Fireball, my short entries are a different blog behind the scenes than my longer entries. And then to just have one feed, I have a script that takes two separate feeds, one from my link list entries, one from my articles, and blends them together into one feed. Um, and I wrote that myself. And I have had times in the past 10, 15 years where that's broken, like when I've upgraded part of the server or moved to a new server, where text starts getting encoded differently because there's different modules you know it it it's not trivial like you wouldn't want to save generating an xml feed for the last minute <laughs> mm -hmm. whereas json feed i i could see why you weren't worried about it like you, you know and you're a big believer in murphy's law right Brent? oh yeah 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 absolutely well because it's true right but murphy's law often involves xml <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
All right. Speaking of feed readers, Brent, you have an announcement to make. Yeah, uh, I've actually been working on a new feed reader for quite some time as one of my nights and weekends projects. And I thought for quite a long time, um, you know, what what I wanted to do with it. And for a long time, I thought I'll make it, uh, you know, a for pay commercial thing, you know, make some money. I've decided against that. So the name of the reader is Evergreen, and it is up on GitHub. There's a repository, uh, github.com slash Brent Simmons slash Evergreen. And it's not quite usable yet, except by extreme masochists, but it's coming along and eventually we will have a uh, modern, nice, cool Mac RSS reader, an Atom reader and JSON feed reader. I was going to say, is it going to support JSON feed? Of course, yeah. (laughs) But tellingly, I haven't actually written the JSON feed support for it yet. So uh, at the moment, it's only running on, on my machine and it only works with RSS and Atom. But, you know, maybe I have 15 minutes later today and I'll, I'll fix that. <laughs> uh, so it's Mac only. Mm-hmm. Open source. Open source. And uh, tell me why it's Mac only. It's Mac only um, mainly because my, my two big passions in, in my career have been the open web and the Macintosh desktop, Mac apps iOS apps were kind of fun, but also so massively heartbreaking that I, I can't love that the way I love the Mac. And so for me, the intersection of of the open web and the Mac desktop is my favorite place to work. And that's why I work on things like Frontier, and that's why I've worked on RSS readers. That's why I started Mars Edit a long, long time ago. Um, so that, that's my favorite place. And so I'm writing another feed reader because I, you know, that's me. That's what I do. So right now, your day job, though, for the last, what, like, how long have you been at Omni Group? Two years? Uh, two and a half years. Two and a half yeah. years. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you work on at Omni Group? Uh, for the past year and a half, maybe, I've been on Omni Outliner. And I also love Outliners. And this is my favorite Omni app. So it's, it's been great working on that. And I've been solely on the Mac version uh, this whole time, at least so far. Uh, before that, I worked on Omni Focus for Mac. Right. But the Mac apps in particular. Absolutely. And yep. we've had this discussion now, you know, obviously longtime listeners of the show know that you and I, uh, along with Dave Wiskus, uh, collaborated on an iOS app. Well, ultimately, it was only an iOS app, although we had plans for a Mac app. We can go over that some other day. Vesper from a couple yep. of years ago. Um, and in our postmortems of Vesper, one of our big regrets was that we we strategically we i I think i'm speaking for both of us but we we wish that we had done the mac version first both for business reasons and um it it just seems like it it was a strategic error we got i I think we kind of got blind sided or blind blinded by the 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 sort of like what I said about how the web was everybody was blinded by HTML and the web in the mid nineties, five, six years ago, iPhone apps were such the thing. Um, and I don't think you, I, I don't think you ever enjoyed writing an iPhone app as much as you enjoyed making a Mac app. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's no comparison. Uh, even in the early days of iOS and I had net newswire for iOS. Well, for iPhone was up on day one of the app store. Um, and that was cool initially because the iPhones were so new and exciting, but it kind of wore off for me. You know, I've been a long, long time Mac user and 
I, I love writing Mac apps just way it's, much more. It's a different, you often hear the, I think there's more people out there, uh, like let's say WWDC in a few weeks, there will be more people at, attending WWDC who would raise their hand and say that they prefer iOS, writing iOS apps to writing Mac apps. And again, not to go into out in the weeds on programming differences, but that people find iOS's UI kit more they just like it better than they like the equivalent on Mac, which is called AppKit, which dates back to the next days. Uh, and so what you're saying is really the opposite, though, that you prefer the Mac to iOS. But it's not really, from your perspective, I don't think it's really an AppKit versus a UIKit thing. It's more of a uh, the freedom of, of you know, a Mac app, uh, especially one that's not sandboxed, you know, it, 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 it's liberating in some, you know, very t- literal ways. It really is. You know, the, the personal computer revolution changed the world dramatically. It brought, going back to democratization, right? It, it brought power to uh, anybody who could manage to get a computer in their life. And, and that's huge, really, really huge. And it remains huge. And iOS still isn't liberating in quite that same way. Maybe it's liberating in other ways, for sure. You know, you have it in your pocket wherever you go. Uh, but the kind of deeper things that you can do on a Mac are still difficult to impossible on iOS. And, and I like that. I, I like being able to do those deeper things and to enable users to do deeper things. And I sense a certain frustration uh, from you personally about the, uh, again, not like your anti-app store, but that it... it <sighs> Distributing your software through the app store has pluses and minuses, but that the minuses uh, weigh you down. It makes it less likely that you're going to do something for iOS as a nights and weekends type thing. Yeah, that's right. It, it adds it adds a bunch of housekeeping. It adds a bunch of you know stuff. I just rather not spend time doing, and and it separates me from my users. Mm. Um, and you know, I I don't like that at all. You know, the fact that Apple provides, you know, a download space for your apps. It's kind of nice, but I wasn't really asking for that. I can just use S3 or whatever. I mean, it's sort of a solved problem, right? Nobody, Mm -hmm. it it, it, it was a point where it really was as an indie developer, it was actually an expense to like, well, where am Mm -hmm. I going to host the actual, like, uh, I guess it was like a dot sit file at the time. Yeah. Right. Where's my stuff at archive with my app going to be? Uh, Because the bandwidth, but you know, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't heard the last time that somebody ran up a bandwidth bill on downloads. And just being on the app store doesn't, you know, replace the fact that you need to do marketing. So whether there's an app store or not, you still have to do marketing. Um, It it really just doesn't help that much. Hmm. Having something on the app store, people aren't just going to magically find your app. You you still have to do all the stuff you would have done without an app store. So So why another feed reader? Um, just out of love because I, I love it. Um, uh, another big reason is, you know, I love these technologies. I love the open web. Uh, I love feeds and I'd like to see more people use it. And so that goes to why, um, I'm making it free. Um, yeah, I, I could not, in other words, like some, one day, a few years ago, I just found myself writing an RSS parser, and I'm like, yep, I'm doing this, because <laughs> obviously my fingers want me to do this, and I have no choice. 
Uh, <laughs> the name Evergreen is so great, too. I wonder, like, how much did that lock you into the idea of, you know, you have a great name. You almost have to, to finish writing yeah, the app. That was a relatively recent change, actually. I, I've, it's had a few different names. The first name was Seneca, which, which I love. Uh, it's a beautiful name. And, uh, you know, it's the old Roman senator. Um, it was also the name of the company that made PageMill, though they spelled it with a C instead of an S. Hmm. Um, and I've wanted to use hmm. that name since since that time. Um, but the problem is there's also this Seneca brand apple juice. And I, I just couldn't get away from that association. I, I didn't want people coming to my site thinking that they're going to learn about apple juice. It just didn't work. Uh, the book, I, don't, it, I, I can't say that I'm well-read enough to have read more than one, but the one book from the Roman Senator Seneca that uh, yeah, I think he's best known for is on the shortness of life, uh, which is yeah. a great, it's, and like a lot of really old books, it's actually almost more like an extended essay than a book. Uh, but I will put a, I'll put a link in the show notes to it because it's really a wonderful essay, something that, that written, what, like 2000 years ago that seems yeah. as applicable today as, it, as ever. Yeah, and, and you know, it kind of went to my motivations for writing the app. It's like, you know, apparently this is what I love doing, so why not just do it? It, 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 it I can tell that you're happy with these, the, the set of projects on your plate. Like, I've, you and I have been friends for a very long time, and I, I can just tell you, it almost sounds like you do have a lot on your plate. You've got a very I busy do. day I job. Do. I mean, yep. Uh, it, it, we said you're you're retooling Frontier to run on a modern Mac. Uh, <laughs> JSON feed, in some sense, it's kind of you know at least that's in the past tense. Like there maybe there will be an update or something, but if there is, it'll be minor. So you don't have to do a lot of work on JSON feed. And now you've got yeah, a, that was a, a side project of a side project, right? Um, yeah. But it is related though, where I feel like if I think we're heading to a path where when evergreen is at a place where it's usable right where it's it's more of a you know closer to being uh, yeah i would call this a complete feed reader by that time i i'll bet a decent chunk of the stuff that people are are putting into it are json feeds and one of the things i think are you going to have local feeds uh, at some point, possibly not in 1.0, but yeah, right, yeah, like, scripted local feeds. And, right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. NetNewsWire supported local feeds, and what you could do, and what that means is, if you're, you know, like a, a a scripter, you could write your own feeds locally on your Mac and subscribe to them, and it could be something like, uh, you know, if you have a shared Dropbox folder with people at work, you could generate your own feed of when items appear in there. And then you, if you want to, that would be like your notification. You know, if you're in that newswire all the time, you could see, Oh, there's new items in my shared Dropbox folder. And that's the thing that you wrote yourself. Uh, I, I think that it will in evergreen. I think most scripted feeds will be JSON feeds because they're so much easier to write. If you're oh, writing yeah, a feed, right. if you're starting right now to write your own custom feed, why in the world would you choose anything other than JSON feed? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, because it's as simple as you build the data structure in code and say, all right, JSONify this, and there, you're done. So <laughs> it's 2017, and Brent Simmons is working on Frontier, an outliner. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and a, a feed reader. <laughs> I have like three passions, and I do all three of them, and that's that. 
there which is. means I'm super lucky. You know, I had to get to the age of 49 to be this lucky. But, you know, I worked my way there. <laughs> All right, let me take another break here and thank our next sponsor. It is our good friends at Squarespace. You've heard of Squarespace. They sponsor the show all the time. But listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to make it short because you know what they are already. Squarespace, you go there, type squarespace.com in your browser. You go there. You can say start a free trial. And you start a free trial. And you're already at that moment, you're already building your website. You've got templates to choose from that are both stylistic templates in terms of like what do you think it's going to look like and functional templates in terms of what what is it that you're making? Are you starting a new podcast? Well, then you can start like a blog type thing in Squarespace where you'll have entries and uh, uh, that sort of thing. Or are you building a store because you're selling stuff? You've, maybe you're you know making t-shirts or something like that and you want to sell them. Next thing you know, half an hour later, you've, your website is finished and it's there and it's a real website. The thing that you make in Squarespace, it, it's it is the thing. There is no separate mode for like, well, here's what it would look like. And now you have to build it and generate it or something like that. Like as you make these choices and drag these things out uh, and move them around on screen and change the names, you have a website. It's that easy. So next time you have an idea that needs a website, I'm telling you right now, go to squarespace.com and use this uh, code Gruber. That's my last name. But you don't need to use that code till you buy. So go there and just... Spend 30 minutes trying to build it in Squarespace, and you're probably just you're going to realize that there's no reason to do it anywhere else. They handle everything, hosting, domain name registration, everything you, you need. There's web stats, all of your stats that you need for who's coming to your site, where are they coming from, how many hits a day you're getting. Squarespace has all that covered, all of it. Just remember my last name, Gruber, when you pay, and you'll get 10% off your first order. My thanks to Squarespace for their continued sponsorship of the talk show. Anything else you want to talk about on Evergreen? Uh, oh, just uh, the the meaning of the name. Uh, I think the obvious thing is, you know, the idea that the open web and feeds and syndication are evergreen things. You know, not they haven't gone away. There, there's still a lot of people that like this stuff, and still a lot of people who will like this stuff. Um, but it's all, uh, you know. Also, I live in Washington State, which is the Evergreen State. I went to Evergreen State College. Uh, so it has both some public and some personal meaning. I did not and know I, that. I just love the name. Yeah. I do love the name. Manton, I know Manton loves <laughs> I think Manton loves it more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know all the, the backstory there. I just knew, knew part of that. So I love it even more now. I have a question for you, Brett. You, you mentioned the first thing you said about Evergreen was the GitHub URL. And I mean, you've open sourced some stuff. But in the past, I think most of the things you open source later in a project when it's done or you know or it's you know mature or whatever and this is the first thing i can think of in a while that you've open sourced at the very beginning have you thought about like what that means like what is that going to change any way you approach this and how the app will evolve or you know be forked into other apps and you know who know you know mm-hmm. it's kind of just a different process than you've yeah, it's a good question. Um, so this is open source, as is the work I'm doing on Frontier. And for me, it's exciting because um, I, I feel in a way like I'm performing in public. Uh, I, I get to write blog posts about it. People who want to follow the commits can can look at it and and just see how something like this is made. And maybe for you know people who aren't developers, but 
know enough to be able to understand what's going on, maybe it'll be interesting to them. And maybe for um, newer developers, you know, it'll be a way to to uh, learn, you know, from my mistakes as well as the things that I do well. But, um, you know, so I, I, I almost feel like I'm inventing a new uh, uh, literary form, not, not as high art, but, but the form of, you know, here's a bunch of code, here's a bunch of writing about that code. Um, not that nobody's ever, never done that before. Of course they have, but um, um, I'm just really into that aspect of it. Uh, of all my things I've made, my blog is uh, my longest running. started in 1999, and it's also the thing I'm most proud of. So sometimes I think I'm doing all this just so I have something to write about. <laughs> I, I'm keenly aware of blogs that predate Daring Fireball because it's it, 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 when I had the idea to do Daring Fireball, it was it, it, the motivation was uh, like a ball rolling downhill where it, every day it went by before I launched it, I wished more I already had it. And I had it, I, you know... Um, and and it was the blogs that other people were writing that was making me want to do it right it's you know Kotki and inessential and uh andy bayo's waxy.org launched i think about 6 months before daring fireball but it's it, and the ones that are still going i'm so happy about i'm so happy that inessential still going i'm I, every once in a while I, i'm reading Kotki and i read it every day but every once in a while i'm like you know what i i fucking love that jason Kotki is still killing it with Kotki. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, I, it just makes me so happy that it's just you know all these years gone by, and uh, I could totally see that. And the original blog uh, scripting news, of course, still going strong. Yeah, of course, yeah, definitely, yeah. and it ties into the creation of RSS and podcasting and everything with Dave Weiner, and absolutely mm -hmm. a huge, huge motivating, motivating force. One of the things about Dave that it, it was a huge inspiration for me, uh, beyond his technical contributions and the creation of all these things that my entire career hangs on. Um, but one of the things about Dave that I was so super um, uh, uh, inspired by was that Dave had a column for uh, Wired, and Wired magazine, I forget if it was just on the web or if he was in the actual paper, but I know he was on Hot Wired. Um, and he had his blog. And it, the thing about Dave that was very clear is that I could tell that he liked writing for his blog better than he did writing for somebody else. And it wasn't like he started the blog so that he could get a column at Wired. It was like he wrote the column at Wired so that more people would read his stuff, but it was you know, the, his own thing was the more important thing. And that's the thing that he's, you know, hmm. 25 years later still doing. And it was a huge inspiration for me, which was that I wanted to do Daring Fireball and make it, make Daring Fireball my career, not write Daring Fireball, get well-known and then go write for Macworld or something. So anyway, there's a, yeah, uh, interesting. a nice shout out to Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and I it's funny at that, at that time, I mean, I remember feeling like, gosh, there's so many blogs, like, do we need another blog, do I need to start one? I know some people today are probably feeling that way. Like maybe they want to start a blog, but like, there's so many, but of course, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was certainly not too late to start a blog. Now, if you started a blog that long ago, you were one of the oldest blogs, you know, on the web. And so I don't know, I hope people kind of can help put that in perspective for people. Like it's never, uh, it's never too late. <laughs> and yeah. a lot of these blogs, I mean, we talk about Twitter, we talk about Facebook and how long these services might be around. They're all younger than like our blogs. 
And so, you know, it's a, when you stretch it out five, 10, 15 years, where do you want your writing to be? Like where, if you're passionate about writing on the web, obviously Dave is, obviously y'all are, where do you want that content to live? Um, and it's, you know, I think blogs obviously are, are a great solution. <laughs> Hold that thought, man. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was going to tell the story of how I got into Frontier in the first place. I don't uh, know if I've ever said before. Well, hold that thought. I, right. I, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you about another friend of the show, and ah. we'll we'll do that, and then we're going to talk about man and blogging. Uh, but it's our good friends at Away. Away is a company, another one of these podcast prototypical podcast sponsors that sell stuff direct to you. What do they make? They make luggage. They make really nice. Uh, like suitcases, and they have a carry-on. The carry-on is sort of their 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 prime example. That's like the the one that you want to look at. Uh, I've got one. I've been using it for I forget how many months now, but it's now my my go-to carry-on for every, everywhere I go. Hard case, really nicely made. It's mine. Still looks brand new. I mean, the carry-ons you can you get a lot a lot less wear and tear on because they don't go underneath the airplane. But uh, really nice size. Wonderful wheels. The wheels. Oh my god! I, I had a, a carry-on suitcase. Maybe it was just because it was old, but I had one that was like it was. As I'd go through the airport, it was like squeaking and made terrible noise. The the away it 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 rolls so nice. It's like you don't even have to put any energy into it. It almost goes too fast. But here's the thing that they've got that is the, the it it's so brilliant is they've built into the carry-on suitcase a battery charger. It's like um you know by the standards of like something you would carry in your pocket it's huge you can it's got like two USB ports so two phones or two iPads you know you can charge them at once anything that that charges by USB you can charge from this thing and so when you're at the airport and you're waiting for your flight to go off you don't have to hunt around for one of the two seats in the whole terminal that has a, a charger or an electrical outlet nearby and they never put them near seats anyway everybody you ever go to the airport you see people sitting on the floor so that they can be near the port and there's probably somebody already sitting there you just take any seat you can and if you need to charge your phone you just plug it right in your suitcase it is brilliant this is a, such a great idea uh, and it's a really great suitcase. They've got all sorts of nice stuff inside to help you organize your stuff. Uh, you know, keep your shirts separate and not get them wrinkled, stuff like that. So, uh, what do you do to find out more? Go to their website. It's awaytravel.com, awaytravel.com slash talk show and use the promo code talk show during checkout and you will save 20 bucks on your suitcase. I've got one. I recommend it super thoroughly. Uh, Go there and check it out, awaytravel.com slash talk show. All right, back to the show. And Brent, you were going to tell a story about how you got involved with Frontier in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's not a huge story. But so it was 1995, and I was literally, I had a job as a secretary. I didn't have a CS degree. Had it, had it, and the office had four people in it, including me, uh, but we all had Mac, so I was a secretary. And one night, um, I was bored uh, at home, and I typed into the search engine in my browser, uh, which I think was Lycos at the time, before Google even existed. Uh, Free Mac software was my search term. (laughs) And what that brought up was uh, an article of Dave Weiner's on Hotwired, I'd never heard of him before, um, where he was talking about the release of Aretha, which was uh, a free version of Frontier, um, technically a Frontier 4.0 beta. 
And I'm like, oh, something for programming. Cool. I want to get back into programming. I was thinking to myself, I downloaded it and I loved it. And like that, the entire rest of my career comes from like that one search on that one day. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And everything, you know, it falls out of that syndication formats, uh, mm-hmm. outliners. I mean, that is the one thing too. That maybe we didn't mention before about Frontier, is that the um, the source code editor for Frontier was an outliner, not just yeah. a simple text editor. Uh, and people tend to write almost all modern programming languages in an outline like format, where you say if you say if this then do these things the do these things block people tend to tab them in one more level of hierarchy to the right and then when you're done with that block of only do this if this if statement is true you go back out to the next level but frontier took it to the level where it was literally like on the outliner like a a enforced as an outliner Mm -hmm. right and if you have a good outliner it makes you know restructuring uh indenting, unindenting, et cetera, really, really easy and really, really fast. Um, and it also makes it nice, you know, you can collapse stuff so you can see your code at a higher level and so on. I know we have code folding in a lot of text editors these days, but an outliner is, that's like the cheap version of what a good outliner gets you. Right. And it gets rid of any arguments over tabs versus spaces. Yeah, that's right. Because who cares? My favorite story about working with you I think I've said this before on the show, but with Vesper, you handled all of the programming. Uh, And uh, there's one line of code that was like a regular expression that I I wrote. (laughs) I wrote one line of code for Vesper, and of course it was a regular expression. Uh, (laughs) But at one point, I I, I did have Vesper checked out so I could do my own builds because it was, it's just what you're doing when you're developing. I could, I could update changes and and there were things i would commit like language like if there was stuff to write i might uh, contribute stuff like that but one time i started just i was like you know what i wonder how the hell this works and i just started going through the source code to vesper and i (laughs) i realized that you were all over the map on tabs versus spaces like (laughs) right yeah so i had i was all these people like you should use spaces so i'm like started vesper i'm like okay i'm gonna switch to spaces and a little while in i'm like God, I hate spaces. I'm going to go back to using tabs. But I didn't go through and reformat everything. And so uh, on my machine, everything was indented and lined up perfectly. But if your settings were different from mine, uh, I think you said at one point I indented like a drunken sailor. (laughs) That's exactly what it looked like. But on my machine, it was all perfect. So, yeah. Um, And I've stuck with tabs ever since. It's at that Omni where spaces are the rule. So. For those who don't know, there's, it's a, a long-standing and never-ending debate in, in the programming world where some programmers, when they indent code, they use spaces, and some use tabs. And uh, I, and it, it, it gets very, very uh, – sometimes these arguments can get very uh, <laughs> emotional because the stakes are so low, right? It's just like anything in <laughs> life. Like we're, because it's such a, it's, it seems like such a trivial issue – uh, people get very worked up about it. But usually a, an institution like a group, a company, or something like the Omni Group is going to just have, a, here's our coding standards, everybody uses spaces, then there's no debate. Yeah. I, I, I was appalled by the state of Vesper's indentation. <laughs> I'm 
I'm a little yeah, surprised. I, I would have been too if I if I had <laughs> seen that. But on my again on my machine, everything was perfect. So yeah, I don't know what to say. The, the yeah. Omni uses spaces is fascinating to me because I'm certainly tabs, and I'm not going to start a you know, or finish the debate on this, but traditionally I feel like Mac programmers, especially classic Mac, like I remember when I started programming on the Mac in the classic days, like no one used spaces. I mean, I literally, I can't remember any ever encountering code with spaces instead of tabs. And slowly over the years and decades, especially as people come from other programming communities, spaces become more and more dominant until I would be surprised now if spaces aren't more common. But I'm kind of surprised to hear about Omni. That's, that's fascinating. Oh, I remember they're all Next developers. Yeah, exactly. Not, not that's kind of yeah. a, it's a wrinkle in things. Mm-hmm. My, my basic, I'm with you, man. And I think Mac users tend to be tabs people. And my thought was, always was, I mean, this is back to the 90s, is why in the world would I want four spaces when I have to backspace, 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 backspace to get rid of one when I can just hit backspace once to get rid of a tab. And yes, I know that everybody who codes with spaces now, that modern code editors will smartly delete all four spaces when you hit it. So it treats it the same way. But mm-hmm. you're, why create the need for a special case? Like that, it's exactly what the tab key is for. Right. <laughs> That's why mm-hmm. the tab yeah. key exists. Right. And like, I might want my indentation to look much wider than, you know, I might want it to look like eight. Right. You know, or something, um, and you can't do that with spaces. I think, like to your point about like editors kind of hide this. I bet a lot of people don't even know what they're <laughs> setting. I, like Xcode might default to spaces now. I'm not sure, but I bet most people don't even know if they're using tabs or spaces. <laughs> Kids today don't even know if they should be upset about tabs versus spaces. <laughs> Goddamn kids! Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Manton, I mentioned yeah. it before, micro.blog. That's your new platform for microblogging. Tell me about it. Sure. So the idea is with microblogging and is, you know, you, you, Twitter. You know, people like Twitter, right? Both are short, they're easy, kind of effortless. You should put that on your own site, too, is the basic premise. Like, you should have a blog, and you can have short posts on there, and it's fine. And short posts... Yeah, you know, a lot of people they don't want to start a blog or they they have a blog but they don't know what to write because it's kind of daunting. They have to have a title and write multiple paragraphs and have to sound really intelligent. And with short microblogging, it removes all of that. Right? It's okay to just post something that's a couple sentences, and uh, and that that's the basic premise. You know, it's a blog publishing platform, but it's also kind of a social network, so you can follow people like you can on Twitter. Uh, you can cross post to Twitter. And the, but going kind of back to JSON feed too, I mean, it shares some similar themes and just like helping get the message out kind of like encouraging people um, to think about blogs and feed readers again. That's the, that's the most important goal, I think, of micro.blog. Now, you launched this as a Kickstarter campaign. Um, and I, I know I, I, as a, somebody who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign, that's where I got my micro.blog account from uh where does it stand now on like signups i haven't even looked like can can people who didn't weren't in on a kickstarter get a an account at micro.blog not yet it's still for kickstarter backers um i so i i opened it up to kickstarter backers about a month ago now and i guess we're kind of on track for for where we thought it would be but it, you kind of using that early period with Kickstarter backers to you know get feedback, make it better. 
the the iPhone app's not in the App Store yet, right? So it's all via test flight. So it's kind of still a beta, and then we'll slowly start opening it up to uh, to more people, and eventually everybody. Yeah, pretty soon, but uh, don't have an exact date yet. But it's also the sort of thing where it's federated, where somebody else can create their own hosted service that is completely compatible. It's not like like I. I I think it's worth clarifying that your micro.blog is not an attempt to make like a quote unquote open Twitter. It's, it's not a unified centralized uh, social network type thing. It's really just a hosting yeah. service for short posts. Right. And it's a kind and it's a little confusing because it's kind of a mix of things and it's not right now completely federated. Like if people have heard of Mastodon, which has got some popularity over the last um, month or so, which is a more federated where you have more kind of instances of a Twitter-like uh, service running. It's a little different than that in that instead of like um, just installing the micro.blog software yourself, you just use blog software, right? So you just use WordPress. Like if you want to run your own site, you just use WordPress or you know Jekyll or some other um, blog publishing platform that you like. And then, it, yeah, and then it, it hooks together into micro.blog so you can follow people. Uh, and if you don't, if WordPress is too much and you just want something simple, then we can host a microblog for you and just make it really easy. And that that's part of it, just like making this easier. I think blog, blog, you know, feed readers, um, publishing platforms, like they're not as easy as they should be. And that's why Twitter and Facebook are so popular uh, in part, because it just makes it a lot easier. You know, I was thinking back to like when you wrote, John, about, you know, Twitter uh, apps are like a UI playground mm. years ago. It's like there's all this there's all this excitement in, in Twitter apps, and of course, Twitter started di- discouraging uh, third party apps, and we, that kind of faded away. But there was a time where people were having a lot of fun building these apps because you could do you could do so much uh, in the UI with such a simple idea. And I think that simple idea can be for you know other blogs, not just not just Twitter. You can have, you sh- it should be that easy to post to your own site, basically. That's a good way to put it. As a, you should write that down. <laughs> it should be, <laughs> micro.blog, it should be that easy to post to your own site. That's good. Uh, and yeah, and you need to support things. You've got support bit. for things like photos, uh, you know, so you could, if you wanted to, your micro, somebody's uh, micro.blog feed might just be like a sort of, I, I, I follow you there and you're, you often post updates about your work on micro.blog itself. It's sort of like your public record of, you know, here's the progress I'm making on this thing that I know that people are following along with. But somebody else could do it and and effectively use their micro.blog as like their own personal self-hosted Instagram where they just yep. post like a, a, you know, take one nice photo every day and post it. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm really happy to see it. And that the, the official micro.blog app tries to kind of encourage that by having... You know, it's not as full feature as Instagram, but it has like, filters and it, it it has square photos, and which actually turns out they work really well in you know timelines like that. Right. And it just just make it really easy to to post photos. And I I think that's really important. I think like photo blogging is like a really important kind of variation on microblogging. Um, you don't have to write a lot. You can everyone wants you know, everyone takes photos. Sometimes they're really good and worth <laughs> worth sharing. And Instagram is in an interesting point now too, as being part of Facebook. Um, I'm not going to say there's going to be a pushback against Instagram. Like Instagram's probably not going anywhere. Uh, I still love Instagram, but I think there are a lot of people that are aware of the trade-offs. 
with using Instagram and Facebook, and they love the idea of having those photos on their own blog as kind of like the, the first they go to my blog, and the next they optionally go to Twitter or Instagram. Making money is often in conflict with simplicity. That's a broad statement, but I think it's often true. And I, I think Instagram is an example of that, where I still like Instagram a lot, but I don't like it as much as I used to when Instagram was just square photos with filters mm -hmm. and there was yeah. nothing else. Like, I, I get the stories thing now. I don't really, I posted like one, I went through a uh, car wash a couple of weeks ago and, and uh, <laughs> I love being in it. I, ever since I was a kid, I like driving my car through a car wash. Uh, it's just like neat sounds. It, I don't know. And it looks cool. So I posted an Instagram story from the car wash, but uh, for the most part, I, I, I don't really get the idea of posting something that's going to disappear. If, uh, uh, it does. It just mm -hmm. doesn't fit me personality-wise. Like, there's all sorts of stuff that I would never post to the internet, just because I, I, I you know, I, obviously I'm a public person in terms of my writing and stuff, but I'm, you know, in large part pretty private. Uh, so I don't do things like I don't check when I go to a restaurant. I don't check in. I've never done that. I, I don't understand it. I don't know why I would want to. I don't know why I'd want other people to know what restaurant I'm at, etc. But I, I, I just feel I, I can kind of ignore it in Instagram, but it just, I don't know. It just mm -hmm. seems to me like two different things. Whereas I look at, like I'm looking at micro.blog right now and I'm scrolling down and it's like, well, this is just nice. It's just like a list of things I signed up to see. And then the only things that are there are the date that they were posted, a reply button and a favorite button. And that's it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The idea is kind of back to basics in a way. And of course, no ads and things like that, because the business is just helping people, right. you know, host their blog or help help make it easier. There's the business is not to grow to billions of users and, and you and know it, put ads it, in their face. And again, all this stuff that the three of us are talking about today, they all sort of interrelate. And Brent, I think that there's an angle with that with making Evergreen just a free open source Mac app, where you know you've got a day job at Omni Group, which is a company that knows how to make money on software, but that frees you up. Like Evergreen is. It, it must be liberating in some ways that you don't have to worry about Evergreen selling for $19 a copy or whatever the price would be. It very much is, yeah. I, you know, I kept thinking, well, at some point I'll have to deal with licenses and demo version. Do I, do I make a light version available? And, you know, what about when people lose their serial number? And I'm like, don't make me. And as soon as I'm like, you know, I don't have to do it. All right, so I won't make that money, but whatever, I'm fine. You know, so... It's it, a lot easier to have fun when there's no need yeah. to to Absolutely. make money. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, you've got a complicated relationship with Twitter in history, <laughs> uh, and so one of the things that you've done in the past is you. I think it's correct to talk about it in the past sense, but you had Tweet Library, which yeah. was uh, was it, it was an iPhone app, right? Or, yeah, it started as an iPad app and then it became a universal app for both iPhone and iPad. And it's and, again, it's the same, it's just like with Brent, it's your same obsessions coming back over. Tell us about, what was Tweet Library? Yeah, so, and then Tweet Library kind of came out of that same period that I referenced too, of like lots of innovation in Twitter apps. And my take on it was uh, it actually kind of fits in with your Instagram comment too, is like, why would I want to post something that disappears? And I, I feel the same way. I kind of experimented with 
Instagram stories, but I don't have a Snapchat account. Like to me, if, if I'm taking a picture or I'm writing something, if I'm bothering to write it down, it kind of matters to me. And so I want it to last forever as long as possible. You know, I want it to be in my domain name and I want to be able to find it later. And so tweet library was along those lines of like, how can I download all my tweets, search them, filter them by, you know, keywords or date, uh, you know, maybe export them or collect tweets together. And back then, uh, Twitter was, I mean, Twitter has some, it has better search now, uh, at least in the, the website, it has better like collecting tweets together. But back then it was much more difficult to find old tweets. And so I wanted an app that could do that. Uh, if you're right in the past tense. I don't sell it anymore. Uh, it was hard to let that app go, but it, I, I went, definitely went through, I went through a phase of being very frustrated with Twitter and it didn't make much sense to keep working on that app for that reason. And also just because there's, there were other apps that started to do the same thing. Yeah. And it, it's a semi-recent thing, but they now Twitter does now have a thing where you can say, send me an archive of all of my tweets mm-hmm. from history. And then like two days later you get an email with like a download link. Um, yeah. And I actually added a feature to tweet library where you could, yeah, you, you get a download link that's like a zip file and I, you could import that directly in tweet library, which was really great because the first version of Tweet Library you couldn't do that. You basically had to run the app every once in a while, make sure it downloaded everything for you. Uh, but you yourself uh, don't really use Twitter anymore. Not really. I, I so I, I, I definitely I, I got frustrated when Twitter was kind of um, just becoming kind of developer hostile. Um, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about feeds a lot, they remove their RSS feeds is one example of something they did. Lock down their API a little more, you know, put limits on what how big a Twitter app could get in terms of popularity compared to the official app. Uh, the whole the famous kind of app tokens um, that, that they limited and, and various other shutting down other Twitter apps. And so I kind of left, I kind of threw a fin, left, uh, left Twitter for a number of years. And in fact, my original Twitter account, which is you know, over, over 10 years ago now, I do not post to it and don't log in it as it ever uh, anymore as kind of a, I, I left Twitter. Uh, I was actually one year after Steve Jobs died and I collected a bunch of stuff about Steve, a lot of uh, tweets and stuff. And I, I, I wanted to mark like the occasion of, of leaving as like, this is something that I think was great about Twitter, like something that made Twitter really special. And so I just haven't touched it. I've just let it be what it is. And I feel like if I went back to that account, it would kind of, uh, you know, it would like cheapen like mm-hmm. the, what I was trying to capture. Um, and that was like five years ago now, I guess, four or five years ago. And so what I have done though, is I created a separate Twitter account, Manton too, where I cross post stuff. So if I post something in my blog, it automatically cross posts to Twitter and, I started as an experiment and I thought I would stop, but I just kind of kept doing it anyway um, for people who don't have feed readers and they want to kind of keep up with my blog, they can follow that account. Or if they want to effectively use Twitter as a sort of poor man's feed reader. Exactly. And I know a lot of people do that. I I personally, I mean, if that works for you, I guess that's great. But I, I mean, I love traditional feed readers and I hope to see more activity, obviously even feed readers with JSON feed and whatnot. So that doesn't work for me, but if it works for you, you know, you can follow Twitter accounts that way. Uh, so where do you see, uh, how do you, how do you think the launch of micro.blog has, has gone so far? I think overall good. It's very limited, of course, with Kickstarter backers. Uh, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't really ready 
when I opened it up to Kickstarter backers, like it needed probably a few more weeks at least uh, of, of baking. And, uh, you know, there were bugs and there were issues. And so I'm obviously really glad that it was limited to a smaller audience. But I feel like we've worked through a bunch of those. I feel like it still has, there's still a bunch of things to improve. And, you know, there's a bunch for me to work on before the public launch, but overall I think it's good. And I think it's resonating with, with certain people. You know, some people don't get it and that's okay, but um, some people are excited about it and, and kind of get the potential for, for what it's trying to do with blogs. Now, one of the things you were able to do through the Kickstarter, I, I think it was a, like an extra level, but you, you made enough through the Kickstarter where you said, if we hit this level, we're I'll hire a community. Um, what, what's what's Gene's mm-hmm. title? Yeah, community manager. All right, so was you, you the, hired the great Gene McDonald of, yeah. uh, formerly at Smile Software, uh, App Camp for Girls co-founder, and all around uh, amazing person. She's what's her, uh, community coordinator. Uh, so when I wrote the Kickstarter update about halfway through, um, talking about like a stretch goal for the the project, community manager was the uh, the, the term I used. Now, Gene, I mean, I didn't think I'd be so lucky to get someone uh, as great as her with so much experience that she has. So I don't know if that term is perfect anymore <laughs> for everything that I think um, she's going to be able to help with, um, with the project. But yeah, I couldn't be happier. I mean, she's got great experience, um, smile and app camp. And I wanted to, I didn't want to wait to address issues of, you know, potential just kind of hate and harassment and the, the kind of problems that we see, uh, almost kind of run unchecked sometimes on Twitter. I mean, it, I don't completely blame Twitter for some of that, but I, I do kind of blame them for not s- trying to work on that stuff earlier. And so my, my thought is uh, start earlier, try to get out in front of those kind of issues, and then it won't blow up into a huge problem because it's very difficult after it becomes a problem. And I, like I said, I don't completely blame Twitter because it's hard for them to solve now. If they had started earlier, maybe it wouldn't be quite as bad it's it's like any kind of infestation the earlier you can address it the better you know or or even if you you know try to you know if you're uh, redoing your your uh, patio or your deck if you make sure that the door closes with a good seal to keep ants out it's better to do it now than to wait till you've got an ant infestation in your house yeah, and I don't know. I think Twitter sort of. I I, I know people there, and I I know that there's. I don't think there's a single person at the company who's happy about the the abuse that takes place on the platform. But I think that they they chalked it up to, ah, we'll fix it eventually. Mm-hmm. And but once it takes root, it's a lot harder to to take care of. So I think it was. Yep. Uh, I think it was very smart for you to to treat this as a hey, here's something that's on my plate while it's still a Kickstarter. And it's an idea yeah. in my head, as opposed to waiting until it might be too late. Yeah, and and because some of these things need to be addressed through, like design and features, not just like hiring more people to police tweets, right? So like, um, there's some things inherent in how Twitter works um, with reposting, with hashtags and search and trending. There's 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 a lot of areas where people. Um, will get attention that they don't want is kind of, I guess, a simplified way to put it. And so it's it's almost impossible to change some of those. There's like fundamental fundamental ways that Twitter works, and sometimes those are great things. Like I said, I, I tried to highlight when I when I when I left Twitter, like some of the great things that Twitter enables. But sometimes 
not good things happen because of the way features work. So I, with microblog. With micro.boy, I didn't want to just copy every Twitter feature. I wanted to think about every single um, feature, every every part of the, the UI, the, the design of the app, to, to see if it would be one of those things where people could be harassed, for example. Right. And um, so it's, again, back to basics. It's limited, and you know we'll be adding more features. But there's some things we won't add because I feel like they encourage uh, bad behavior. So one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's like Twitter. A micro.blog post has just one text field. You just type in it, and then you hit post, and it's posted. So you don't have to come up with a title. Uh, in fact, you can't. There are no titles. Right. Um, I think I think you're exactly right. You mentioned this a couple minutes ago, where I think that that's so freeing in some ways. you know. And I often think about it with email, where... I don't like to half-ass my subjects, but it's it, there's a lot of times where I'll sit there and stare at the subject, and I think, you know what, screw it, I'll just hit them up on iMessage instead, because then I don't have to come up with a subject. <laughs> yeah. right. it, it, it's a weird psychological barrier. Like I would never think to do a, a site like Daring Fireball without titles, because that's like my... That's my job, you know, and it's uh, it's something I take very carefully. So I don't mind the formality of always having a title, and I don't really expose them. Um, but I, you know, all, all seventeen years worth of, or however however long, fifteen years of daring fireball posts uh, have tags with categories and stuff like that. I don't mind that because I feel like, hey, that you know, this is my job. I should you know straighten up, you know smooth out the wrinkles in my shirt, make sure I don't have crumbs on my face, you know, whereas when I'm just shooting off at the hip on Twitter, I don't, who gives a shit? Yeah. And, and, you know, different, you know, kind of workflows work for different people. Like some, and, and I think that for some people that's totally fine. Just like throw out whatever thing on Twitter. And, but there's a lot of people that I think would benefit from maybe a, a little thinking about it a little bit before they before they post something, um, and uh, maybe like our president, <laughs> just saying, maybe maybe just a little. Um, but yeah, anyway, so like blogging should be easier. It should be as easy as Twitter. Uh, you should still think about what you're posting. Um, but for some people, they don't care if it lasts. They don't care if it's if it's searchable or they can find it again. And then, but for other people, the idea that. It, if even if I'm just like this this quick comment or joke on Twitter, even that is worth keeping. It's worth having in my own domain name. It's worth you know being able to find later and link to. And so it just just depends depends what you want to get out of it. So differences between micro.blog and Twitter. Uh, one of them, and again, full circle comes to one of our creations. You support Markdown for their text formatting. Um, yeah which uh, I've seen people suggest that Twitter should do, and I kind of think that they can't now. There's no way that they can, like, it, there's a sort of expectation in Twitter that if you type an asterisk and then a word and then another asterisk, that you're going to see the asterisks. You mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, it might be too late. But you also And have, the idea uh, there is just, like, uh, tweets are fine, I guess. But, like, if you look at a short tweet-like post, and instead of having... Uh, like a bunch of URLs at the end of it or something, mm-hmm. if it has inline links and maybe something's in bold, like look at both of those side to side and it looks really great. Yeah. Like it just really looks nice uh, when you use like just simple markdown and it just, when you're scrolling through your timeline and something's in bold and then there's an inline link or something, it just looks really nice. And you don't have to 
you know, do a micro blog post that way, but you can. I think it uh, just adds something, a kind of a clarity to uh, the timeline. There's an underappreciated aspect to writing for the web. And I, I maybe somebody's written about it in a in a way, but I've never seen it. But it, it's like just uh, Im- implicit rather than explicitly talked about. And I certainly don't think anybody learns about it in school, even though I think it should be taught the same way other forms of grammar are. Which is, where do you put a link? What words do you use for the link when you're linking to something? I think very carefully about it every time I put a link in my writing like which words and it bothers me sometimes and you i often notice it in like articles at like a of old long-standing print publication like a newspaper where the if the new york times is writing about something and the washington post reported it first they'll say this was first reported in an article by the washington post and they'll make the link just the word article and i think no it should be like article mm. by the washington post like add a couple more words to that link um yeah. I wonder if they're almost trying to hide the link a little that's bit. That's what I think. No, that's exactly yeah. what I, I, I read into that though. I read at this meta level when I see the links and I think, oh, they're, you know, they're, that's exactly what I think. I think that's sort of like a, you know, they're throwing shade on them by making the link as short as possible. Like, all right, we'll give you credit for this, but we're going to make it as inconspicuous as possible. Um, and I do think that, I think that we've, in some ways, we've gone backwards with these posting formats like Twitter and Facebook, where if you want to have a URL, you have to show the whole URL. Like, it's not that, like, uh, there were some people who've pushed for URLs being completely hidden and the way that, like, browsers have sort of, they've, they still haven't done away with them entirely, but like Safari typically just shows the, your domain name in the location field until you click in the location field and then it shows the whole URL. Like they've slowly but surely made them, tried to make them less of a user facing thing. Um, but we've ended up in this world where when you share URLs on Twitter and stuff like that, you have to see the whole ugly thing. And so many people have CMS systems that generate these ugly URLs. And even if you don't have ugly URLs, all of these people now post these utm turds for seo tracking or whatever the hell they're for and so the urls have gotten uglier over time and we're stuck looking at them yeah and twitter tries to like clean them up a little bit like truncates part of them or but yeah it's it's can get really a lot of clutter very clear. And just being able to do square bracket and square bracket, put the URL in parentheses afterwards, and then have it render just as a nice word. It like who would have thought in nineteen ninety six that in twenty seventeen we'd be saying, you know what's nice? It's a blocking system where you can make links. <laughs> like right. it doesn't seem like something that we would be praising a new blogging platform for in twenty seventeen, but there it is. And it's that's the, the basis thing. for the entire web. Right. I mean. <laughs> and, and like, if there's one theme that underscores a lot of what we've talked about today, it's like, things should be better. Like, we, should, <laughs> we deserve a better web by now, right? And, uh, like, I think Twitter should have evolved um, more quickly. Uh, they ran into, you know, issues and leadership changes and whatnot, and, you know, that happens. But, like, it should be better. Uh, feed readers should, I mean, feed readers should, in some cases, work uh, like should embrace ideas, you know, from mm-hmm. social networks. Um, and yeah, so there's progress to be made and that's, I'm excited for that because uh, like what Brent said about like these themes in his life of like working on an outliner, 
um, you know, working, uh, writing on his blog, like these things that last and he's still happy doing, you know, 20 years later. I feel the same way about blogging. I can't believe actually it took me this long to build a blogging platform. I probably should have built one a long time ago. Um, but I'm glad that there's still like unsolved problems. Like there's still room for improvement. I I think that I don't want to be too melodramatic, but I feel like Google Reader was a catastrophe, like in the in the sense of like the meteor that killed all the dinosaurs a couple hundred million years ago. Like it, Google Reader became so popular and so central, and 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 it was even because it was central and it had APIs. It was even for people who didn't look at Google Reader, like NetNewsWire had to support it as the syncing engine. Like I'm looking at Net Newswire, but it's using Google Reader behind the scenes to do the syncing, so that an app on my iPhone can see the same red on red status and have the same subscription feeds. And when Google Reader went away, it it did so much damage to the open web, and it's it's our own fault for letting the open web become so dependent on one centralized proprietary thing from a company. Like the open web thrives when there's multiplicity. Um, but it is funny though. I feel like in hindsight, like like it was bad for the web that Google Reader went away. And I, I've said it before. Like traffic at Daring Fireball plummeted. I mean, I lost twenty five percent of my page views per month, just like by like that, just gone, and it never returned. Luckily, I don't think readership is down. I just think the number of times a day that people came to the site went down because Google Reader was their way to get notified when something new was posted. Um, Thankfully, I never monetized the site by page views. It was always based on how many people and what I could charge sponsors per week. But other sites that had page view based things lost 25% of their revenue just like that. Um, but much like the catastrophe of like the, the meteor, there, there has been a, a, an awful lot. Like there's so many more feed syncing services now than there were when Google Reader went away. Like just quietly, the feed, uh, I don't want to say industry because that's the wrong word, but the community surrounding feeds has sort of routed around that. And there's, and it's, it's good that there's so many options now for things like syncing feeds. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, maybe these small mammals will take over now that the dinosaurs are dead and uh, you know, something good will come of that. People definitely still read Daring Fireball through feed readers. I mean, I, I just looked at it the other day and how many hits there are to the to the feed. And they come from a wide variety of sources. Like, there's no one dominant feed reader anymore, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. I wanted, uh, I got one more sponsor to thank, uh, and it's our good friends at MailRoute. And then I want to talk to you guys a little bit about WWDC, and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, but our sponsor right now, it's a good friends at MailRoute. MailRoute is a company. It's the group behind MailRoute has been working together for 20 years. They started in 1997. Uh, they were at Microsoft for a while, and now they have their own company, MailRoute. And all they do, this is it, all they do is handle email filtering. You point you, if you have a domain name for your company, your personal site, uh, anything like that, you point your MX records for your domain name to MailRoute and your mail goes to them first and then they forward it on to your existing mail server. So they're not, they're not hosting your email. Your, your hosting service stays exactly the same. You don't have to change your clients at all because they all just talk to the same server. It's just that all incoming email goes through MailRoute first. And guess what gets filtered out? All of the junk. All the viruses and the scammy, spammy attachments, all that stuff just goes away. 
And MailRoute has APIs. So if you're like an expert, if you're a professional system administrator, you can write, integrate it with your software. They have APIs that you can connect to. They have great user-facing stuff. So the users can go there and get a report of which emails got filtered and stuff like that. See a list of the ones that are maybe like in the gray area, just to double check it with your eyeballs if you want to. Uh, everybody's getting out of this business. Even Google has come out recently and said that they encourage people who use Google Apps for email, to, uh, for their company email, to use a gateway service like MailRoute first so that they don't have to be the, the front line of filtering out your email. It's a terrific, terrific service. I personally know a bunch of people who, who use MailRoute on their domains now, and I don't know a single person who's started using MailRoute who's stopped. It's, it's so good. It does one thing. They do one thing really well. And they, I don't think there's, I don't even know who's second place is in the business. It's so great. And I think they have one of the best offers you're ever, ever going to hear from a sponsor. You go to mailroute.net slash TTS. That's like the initials, the talk show, mailroute.net slash TTS. You get a 30 day free trial. And then when you sign up through that link, you get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So I, like I said a couple of weeks ago, you could be using them for 20 years and you'll still be saving 10%. It's an amazing deal. You'll save tons of money. So go to mailroute.net slash TTS. Uh, so WWDC is coming up. You guys, you guys are, are going, right? Oh, yeah. Matt, are you going? Well, not actually going to the conference, but everything else. The same here. I'm not going to the conference, but I'll be there. I'll, I'll be there for a few days. I think. Jose. I think it's going to be so weird. I, I've we've you know, the three of us have you know been in the WWDC for a long time now. We've you know at least the last ten years or so. We've I think we've been. To, I've been to everyone. I think you guys have too, or at least most of them. And we hang out together, and we go to the same same restaurants, and we drink beer at the same places. And it's I'm ready for a shakeup. But I think it's going to be so bizarre because it's. I am sort of a creature of habit, and it's going to be weird not being able to go to the House of Shields. That's exactly my thought, too. It's like we always know we'll end up at the House of Shields at the end of the night. Everything else may be up in the air, but but we have that one that one habit especially. <laughs> if we end uh, up there this time, that's going to be that's going to be a story. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that news. probably a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> Very I don't know. Bad. Yeah, we'll work it out. I mean, you know. Somehow it'll be different. All right. One of the uh, events that is going on at uh, WWDC is there's going to be a screening of App the Human Story. That's a documentary movie. It's been in the work for a couple of years now, but it's it's finally coming out as a as a you know real deal. Um, a terrific documentary that uh, I know I was uh, uh, interviewed for it, Brent. I know you are. I'm looking at the website right now, and it's actually a picture of you, Brent, at your computer uh, footage yeah, from the that- movie. So there's going to be a. It's me and at Omni actually right there. Is yeah. it really? Boy, mm-hmm. that's, it's a nice desk. Um, there's a screening. I don't know. As we speak right now, there's looks like there's a lot of open tickets available. By the time this episode airs, I don't know if that's true or not. But if it is, you you can go to the show notes and I will have a link to where you can sign up for this. Um, but they are selling tickets to a screening June 4th. That's Sunday, the day before the WDDC keynote, uh, right there in San Jose. Uh, so if you're going to be in the area, if you either if you live there or if you're going to be in the area for WWDC, you can go. And then afterwards, there's going to be a panel discussion that uh, I think I'm actually leading the panel discussion. Ed, Brent, I know you're on the panel uh, mm-hmm. talking about the movie. So it's this is going to be great. And the best thing about it is this screening, all the proceeds for it are going to App Camp for Girls, um, which is a, a terrific uh, program. 
So there's that. I don't know what else you guys want to talk about. What do you guys, what, if you have one wish for WWDC for Apple to announce, what would it be? Bug fixes for Mac OS. Manton? Hmm. I think Siri. Improvements for Siri for developers. I think I'm a big fan of the Echo, and I think Amazon in some ways is way ahead. Um, and I So I don't know if there'll be new hardware or anything, but I, I think there needs to be more with the developer um, SDK for, for Siri to allow, you know, with the Echo, you can do like, you know, there's thousands of skills and stuff you can add um, to the Echo. And the Apple needs, I think, more here. I think they, they can do more. They've effectively taken the opposite approach where last year when they announced SiriKit, they were like, and SiriKit works for the following like three or four things. So like, right. <laughs> And some of them are useful, like ride hailing services, right? So you can like tell Siri to get you an Uber. And because ride hailing service is one of like the three or four hard coded uh, things that it does, the Uber app has APIs to say, okay, when somebody asks for a ride, I, you know, do call these things. And then all of a sudden you're in the Uber app and it's, it's getting you an Uber or a Lyft or whichever one you want. Um, but like hard coding the ideas for what you're going to do is is not the way that software platforms take off because the, things, exactly, the yeah. thing that's popular is never predicted in advance. Well, it's, yeah, it's so limiting. And I, I understand why they did it that way. And there are some advantages like for localization is a big one. You know, Apple can mm-hmm. handle some of the details about like the phrasing in different languages. That's that's important. But I want to be able to do more, you know, I mean, like we've been talking about blogging a lot. I mean, I should be able to ask Siri to post to my blog. And right now, I guess I could maybe overload the messaging, you know, part of Siri, but like that sounds like a hack. And so I think at the very least, Apple needs to, let's say, add, you know, 30 or 40 new types of things that Siri can do and maybe even have another one that's like, oh, and anything, Um, some 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 more yeah. flexible way to extend it. I I think that they know that. I like. I'm not positive. I'm not putting out the idea that Apple thought that having three or four things that Siri could do was was the be all end all. I think that they shipped what was ready to ship, and it was better mm-hmm. to ship it in a limited form than not ship it at all. And I agree with that. Uh, like, it's better that you can at least send messages through this than than if you couldn't do anything. But I really hope that this has been a productive year for the Siri Kit team. I, th- I think that's a good wish. Yep. And, and I almost feel like it, if it's not, it's a, a warning sign about this current state of Apple as a company and, and are they able to keep moving fast and in new directions because it feels like something they really should be doing. I'm also with you, Brent. I, I hope that the Mac announcements are relatively quiet and that it's not really about, wow, lots of new stuff in macOS. I really hope that it's sort of a quiet uh, Snow Leopard style. Uh, yeah, we're actually just making stuff more reliable. Yeah, that'd be great. macOS, it, it, it's mature. They don't need to force themselves to find new features for it. Right. Just, you know, make it faster and, and uh, fix bugs. Yep. yep. Anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Or did I, did I hit everything? Anything about Evergreen or JSON feed or micro.blog that I, I didn't ask about but you wanted to talk about? That covered a lot. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. I'll take it as a no. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I like all this stuff fits together. It, it really does. It just does. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I even like how it fits together with Markdown, where people will be writing yeah. their blog posts in Markdown format and posting them to. 
their micro.blog, and then people will read them, read those things in uh, Evergreen. Pretty nice. Anyway, I, the other thing yeah. that I just love, and I uh, just had a podcast with Jim Dalrymple and signed off the same way. I love being able to say right now, I will see you too soon, and I look forward to it. Yeah, cool. Right on. See you in San Jose.